So this is my third message in the kind of in a thematically a thing, a theme. Uh, so we started on Mount, where were we? On Mount Carmel um, with Elijah and he did that huge cool thing against the prophets of Baal and, and you know, the fire came down and took away the, uh, the offering and the altar and everything and that was super exciting for him. And then he ran off into the wilderness because Jezebel said, you suck and I'm going to have you killed. So he didn't like that idea. So he ran off into the wilderness and he sat down and he was really disillusioned. So he went from being like at the pinnacle of his ministry. God has literally turned up with fire. Everything is fantastic. And then it's like 24 hours later, he sits down and he prays to God and he just says, I wish I was dead. And then he falls asleep. Um, so he's in a really good mood. Um, so that's where we started a few weeks ago when we were beginning our journey. And I was preaching on the first week was on slowing down. And I talked about uh, Martha a little bit, how Jesus kind of said to her, you are worried and upset or anxious about many things. Yeah. You've been recording these, I have been recording them. Yeah, I, I can send you a link to them. Uh, so then we had that, the, had a look at that and I was just about slowing down. So Elijah, he just needed to slow down. He needed to have a nap was the, uh, I think the, the conclusion of that was basically the most important thing for his relationship with God was a nap. Uh, and I really deeply identify with that. Um, so, so yeah, so we're talking about slowing down about if we want to have the kind of, uh, life that Jesus has, we need to accept the kind of pace of life that Jesus has. And if we want to take on his yoke, it's not enough. Cause I think a lot of people, they say, I want to take on Jesus yoke. The Bible, uh, I think it's in Matthew. It says that Jesus has his light yoke. We're all about that, but we don't take off the yoke we already have. So it's meant to be a light yoke when you just have that yoke. Not when you have your normal worldly yoke plus Jesus' yoke on top. That's just going to make it worse. Um, so if we want to have his, uh, the peace and the presence of God that Jesus had access to, we also need to take his yoke, but also the pace of his life. We need to slow down. We need to not be so caught up and anxious and worried and upset about everything. So we are with Elijah and he then had a nap and then he got fed. An angel turned up and said, have, the, have some food. And then he, so he had some food and then he had another nap. So he's got a pretty good life at this point. And then he woke up again. The angel gave him some more food and said, you need some food because you, you really need to be sustained because here's a journey ahead of him. So instead of spending a, I think it's a week, walking to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. If you remember Abraham and Isaac and, um, and Moses went up Mount Sinai. Like, so it's a really important mountain. Uh, he's on his way to this really important mountain. It's meant to take about a week. It took him 40 days. So he went for a little stroll. So he has a, a nap and a snack and a nap and a snack and then a stroll. This is what he needed. He needed to rest and slow down. Uh, so that's kind of where we pick up our story. Uh, so if you recall from uh, last year when I was talking about the, the portraits of God in the Old Testament, one of the things we talked about is how God meets people where they're at. And for the Israelites, that, especially early in their history, they, like, I mean, Abraham um, was a pagan. Like, he worshipped false gods. And, and then the God of, of Israel, you know, like, Jehovah came to him and it's like, I want to have a relationship with you and turn you into a great nation. So that was a really big deal. But he was a pagan before that. So God had to meet him where he was at. Uh, and part of the issue with pagan people is they thought that the gods hung out on mountains. Like, the idea that God would hang out somewhere else was weird. 
That's why they eventually, they had to build a special house for God. Uh, so they, they built a box that God's presence could live in. Because like the gods needed somewhere to live, right? So they lived on the mountain and then they're like, well, we want to take him with us. So they put him in a box. It's a little weird. And then they made a tent for him. They called it the tent of meeting. And they put their special God box inside the tent. Uh, and then eventually later on, they built a temple. And in the temple, there was a holy of holies. It was like a special place where God was allowed to be. Um, and that was just because it reflected their pagan idea of God. It reflected that. So when Elijah wants to talk to God, he's like, well, I've got to go to the place that God talks. To Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb. That's where God does the talking. So Elijah does his little stroll. 40 days later, he turns up and he's at the mountain. He's in a cave on the side of the mountain. And that's where we kind of finished our story last week when, when I was speaking. So that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, so we're in 1 Kings 19 now. And, um, and it says, And the word of the Lord came to him. So finally... Finally, he's, he's run away. He's complained and said, I'd rather be dead than keep doing this. Everything is the worst. And then he's had his nap and his food and his nap and his food. And then he went for a walk and then he's in a cave. And then finally, he's at the mountain and God turned. Uh, and the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's like, seriously, after all of this, you, you're going to ask me a question. Like, I have some things that I am concerned about here, God. Uh, but no, God asks him a question. And so he replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. All the promises that they made to you, they've broken all the rules, they've done everything wrong. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword and I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. So even after a nap and some food and a nap and some food and a bit of a walk, let's be honest, Elijah is still a bit cranky. Um, he's not very happy about this. He has some feelings. I have some children and some grown-ups that I know, but I have some children who occasionally have some big feelings. They don't know quite how to deal with their big feelings. We have a shelf, like me. We have a shelf? A feeling shelf? A feeling shelf? And we blow away our feelings. Okay, so we have some strategies to help with our feelings. Um, so here's Elijah's feelings. Now, here's the thing. Elijah is a prophet of God. He's an important dude. God literally turned up and did these incredible, spectacular, miraculous things on, you know, at, at, at Elijah's beckoning. But that doesn't um, mean that Elijah always sees things clearly. It's one of the things we talked about in the last few weeks. Elijah was suicidal. His prayer was a curse upon himself to, for God to kill him. He was not in a good place. And you see, just because we follow God doesn't mean we have good mental health. Uh, now, that should be good for a whole bunch of us that are thinking, well, I'm too crazy. Maybe God's not real because I have bad thoughts and I have too many feelings and I'm not happy and I have depression or anxiety or whatever. And that Somehow we use this as an argument for why God can't be real. But the prophets were pretty upset. Moses had the same prayer. He's like, God, I don't want to have to carry around these Israelites. I'm doing all the work here. I wish, if that's what it's going to be like, just kill me. So Moses said the same thing. Um, Jonah, um, we had a little Jonah here now. But Jonah got like that. At the end of it, he's like, I'm so angry with you, God. I wish I was dead. Um, Job said, I wish I was never born. Like these guys are guys who knew God, but had really bad ideas and big feelings. 
If we wind back like all of 41 days or something, it says this, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. So I'm winding back to Mount Carmel so we can see what really happened. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. So he's made this altar and the prophets of Baal are trying to get their sacrifice to catch on fire, to prove that they're right. And he's literally made fun of them. Like they're cutting themselves and dancing around the altar. And, and Elijah literally says to him, oh, what, is your God on the toilet? Like he, he's mocking them. And then he gets up and he says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You see, when we are depressed or stressed or anxious or angry or even hungry at times or tired, we twist everything in our mind in a way to reflect our misery. So here is Elijah saying to God and honestly believing it, I am the only one left. Yet 40 days ago, all of the people that were there bowed down and prostrated themselves before God and said, you are the real God. He knows he's not the last one left in all of the world because he literally just saw all of these people get saved and literally turn their hearts back to God. But you see, when we are in a bad place, we see things in a bad way. It's so easy for us to allow our big feelings to get in the way of reality. It's so easy for us to become, you know, to catastrophize and to be overwhelmed and to create a story and a narrative about our experience that just isn't true. And that's what Elijah is doing here. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. So I don't know if there's an angel. Like sometimes the Old Testament talks about the Lord and it's an angel Uh, So it's not like it's a weird kind of thing. So at the moment, I'm pretty sure that there's an angel that's saying to him to do these things. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. And this this is a big deal. And then it says, A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there came an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Like, it, like we read this, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've, you've read this a bunch of times or been told about this event, and you're like, eh, whatever. This is fully crazy though. Can you imagine being on the side of this mountain, finally wanting to hear from God, You've had your big whinge and God's like, that's it, go to your room. Uh, No, he's like, go and stand out here. I'm about to pass by. And then the wind howls like crazy and so much so it rips the mountains apart in front of you. Now, I don't know if he's having a vision or if this is really happening. Either way, I'd be terrified. This is an incredible thing that's happening here. It shatters the rocks and then it's like, but God's not in the wind. And you're like, well, he's not in the wind. Like... And then the ground starts to shake. You're like, oh, I'm in so much trouble. The ground's shaking, but he's not, he's not in the earthquake. And then fire starts falling from heaven. Like fully apocalyptic, crazy, end of the world. Like, and he's a guy that's seen this happen before. And now fire, like, 
there's the wind and the earthquake and the fire and it's terrifying. And then it says, but the Lord was not in any of that. See, Elijah was a guy that, like, spiritual experience was not something that was completely foreign to him. He'd caught fire from heaven before. This was not a new thing. And I think that we, we get conditioned, especially if you've grown up in a church, especially if you've had more of a, I guess, a charismatic Pentecostal experience, to think that God is in the wind. And God is in the fire and the earthquake and the big and the exciting. And, the, and so we don't feel like we've actually met with God until we're like at Hillsong and there's 10,000 people and we're all singing the same correct note. You know, there's some people in this room like God's not in it. If, if they're singing out of key, the, the Holy Spirit cannot be here. It just ruins it, takes me completely out of the experience. But we get, we get conditioned to think that we haven't had a real spiritual experience or we haven't really met with God until the earth is shaking. Until we have the rushing wind, like, you know, like at Pentecost, the rushing wind and the fire, the tongues of fire. And the, like, we don't feel like we've met with God until we've had that experience. But God was not in the wind and God was not in the earthquake and God was not in the fire. Yet a lot of people live like that. They go from conference to conference seeking the fire. They go from moment to moment looking for the next big experience. But they don't, they don't hear what Elijah is about to hear. So the problem with the big experience is that when we leave that big experience, we don't know how to connect with God outside of the fire. We don't know how to connect with God outside of the earthquake and we don't know how to hear from God outside of the wind howling. We don't know how to hear from God without a spiritual experience that, you know, that makes us feel a certain way. We're so used to the, the, the loud or the big, or that's our expectation, that we don't know how to build a relationship with God in the quiet. Here's the thing though, signs and wonders, whilst very thrilling, are not a relationship. They're exciting, but they're not intimacy. It's like if you have a marriage um, and, you only, and you only have sex with each other, but you don't have any intimacy with each other. It's not the same. Having that quiet intimacy connection is very different to just having the physical, you know, ec- ecstatic experience. And we fill our lives up with, with all of that seeking of, of the, the big noise and we can't hear the whisper. And then it says, after the fire came a gentle whisper and Elijah heard it. And he pulled his cloak over his face and went and stood, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I love this because here's where we see that what Elijah, you know, what makes, like one of the things that makes him really special is that he knew that God wasn't in the wind and the earthquake and the fire. He knew that wasn't what he needed from God. He didn't need another fire. He'd already had the Mount Carmel fire from heaven experience and he immediately left that place and was terrified and ran for his life. 
That wasn't the thing that was going to sustain him. So he's had these things happen and then all of a sudden he hears a whisper and he's like, that's it. That's the voice of God. He knows that God is speaking now. So he goes out to the edge of the cave and he's like, this is where it's going to happen. And we don't even get like there's this awkward gap here that happens in just a second. So, uh, so after the fire came a gentle whisper and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I reckon he's probably feeling a little more nervous this time around. Because he says the same thing, but I'm willing to bet he says it in a really different way. Like if you've got kids, or, or there's a lot of teachers as well, when they come and they, they yell at you and dob on you and, and the person that, you know, that they're angry about or whatever, when you calm them down and they're like, I'm not sure what's going to happen now, they tell you the story in a different way. Well, Elijah has just finished complaining and now there's this huge experience and then it's quiet. And God says, again, what are you doing here? And he replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He's not angry now. He's just, he's like, this is how I feel though, God. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And instead of the bravado and the anger and the frustration, this time I'm, I, I feel like he's coming and he's, he's sharing his worry, his concern, his anxiety. And he just says, God, I feel like I'm all alone. You see, Elijah was a normal human being. In the book of James, it, it says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. I think the New Testament felt like they had to clarify that just in case you felt like Elijah was some kind of fancy dude. Um, in the, uh, I think it's, the, it's probably the King James. I didn't write it down. It says uh, that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He had the same feelings, the same griefs, the same jealousies, anxieties and fears. And he was just a dude, just like you and us. And here's the crazy thing. So in that verse 14 and 15, he says, I'm just not coping. That's in verse 14. He says, I'm not coping. I'm the only one left. And then in verse 15, the Lord says to him, go back. Go back and do this. Go back and do this. Go back and do this. Something happens in between verse 14 and verse 15 that is not recorded in any detail in the scripture here. But something happens where God meets with him, where the whisper comes to him, where God soothes him, where God takes his anxieties and his fears and his griefs and his terror and his sense of isolation and his sense of persecution and aloneness. And God does something in that place, in that quiet, lonely place, in the Aramis that we've been talking about, in the solitary place. Something happens in between verse 14 and 15. Elijah goes from I'm not coping to God telling him to go back and get on with the work. And he goes on. And he gets on with the work. Something happens in that place. He has feelings and he puts them out there and he doesn't pretend to be feeling good. He doesn't fake it before God. He just says, this is where I am at. And then something happens and God sends him back into the world ready to go again. He's had his nap and he's had his 
snack and he's had his nap and his snack and he's gone for a long walk and he's leaned into God and he's arrived at the place where God speaks and then there's been the, the, you know, the, the, the wind and the, the mountains tearing apart and there's been the earthquake and the fire from heaven and then finally there is the Aramis, the quiet place, the solitary place. And the whisper of God comes to him and he shares his big feelings and God meets him where he is at. And God gives him what he needs and he sends him back on his way. So what we're going to finally, we, we, we get to a place now, because um, I've been talking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I finally have some practical stuff. I, and I even made a little handout for you. Well, rather, I stole a little handout for you um, from the Bridgetown Church in Portland. I think that's what they're called. Uh, and I really like them. There's a link here at the top that you can punch in if you want. Um, and you can go and see where I've been stealing all of my ideas. And this is the, um, the first week of their kind of practice of seeking the Eremus or the, the solitary place. And it's just a set of instructions. And it's not complicated. I'll go through it quickly um, from the top. It just says at the start, identify a time and a place that works well for you. See, shockingly, if you want to connect with God, um, it should be intentional, not accidental. Jesus made a point of seeking out the solitary place. He went the lonely place. The, he, he went to the mountain or he went um, and set himself to, into a back room somewhere or he found the time and the place where he could meet with God. Um, a lot of the time people say, I don't know how to pray. I'm like, well, have you even made a time and a place to try? And they're like, well, no, I don't know how to do it. I'm like, well, nine-tenths um, of, of getting this right is turning up. So my notes here, they say, uh, for most people, uh, finding a time in the morning works best because you're rested. Have a snack and a rest. Uh, you're rested, you're fresh, the day is young. Uh, maybe it's when your kids are napping or in a lunch break or even after work or before you go to bed. Whenever it is, find a time where you can get some space. Uh, and then find a place that's free of distraction. So last week we talked about finding um, the external silence. Uh, if we want to find internal silence, the, the first place to start is finding external silence. Um, so, you know, you don't, don't go somewhere that's super noisy and super distracting. Don't be like, I'll just turn the TV on. It'll help me to calm down. No, no, that's, it might help you to calm down, but it's definitely not going to help you to focus. So find a place that is going to be um, quiet for you. And then it says, set a modest goal. Uh, and so we have three options here. We have the beginner option, the intermediate option, or the advanced option. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, the beginner option still seems pretty rigorous if you haven't done this before. Uh, it says, like, recommend starting with 10 minutes, three to five days a week. And uh, if you've never done this before, good luck with that. Uh, later on in the notes, I don't know if there was space. I think I, <laughs> I cut it out of the notes. No, it's even there. It says, in the beginning... Doing one or two minutes of this is a huge win. Ten minutes is a home run. So like, like at least it's honest here. Uh, so the beginner goal is to find a place and try to have uh, like some consistency about that. Three or five days a week. Like try and, like if you want to do something well, you've got to do it consistently. 
Uh, whereas intermediately it says try and do this, you know, like try and do it every day. And the advanced one just basically says, good for you, Colin. Uh, no, uh, uh, the, advanced one, the advanced one just says, um, you know, try to increase the amount of time you spend in that space. Uh, I love you, Carl. And I'm inspired by your heart for prayer. Uh, resentful a little too. Uh, so, and then it says, now for the practice. Okay, so we start with putting away your phone or other distractions. Yep, that means my iPad um, means turning my watch off, which is basically just another phone. Uh, it, it means... Can I chuck something in that? Yes. I find that not practical because my Bible's on my phone and my notes where I write what God says is on my phone. So instead of that, I just turn it on to don't disturb. And then that way, nice. it's still... Like if God starts talking about something, I can still sort of like do what I want on that but it's a way of getting rid of the distractions. Because I also found that you sit down and pray, you wouldn't have had any messages or phone calls the whole day. As soon as you did that, my phone would go nuts. Yep. And it took me a little while to be like, this, this isn't normal. I've got to try and cut it out. Well, I reckon, I reckon having a journal or something helps with that. Because yep. um, I think pen and paper is something more intimate. Yep. Sending someone an email is not the same as writing them a letter. So I think that when you're trying to record, I think that that is just a, as a practice. I think it can help some people. Um, you know, like we said, uh, if you're in your advanced category, you can probably not be distracted by your phone as much. Uh, I know for myself, though, that's a challenge. Uh, one of the things that Alison Papenfuss, uh, my friend in, in uh, Africa, a great idea that she had is she said, you have your journal or something like that. And as soon as you start trying to find a quiet place with God, as Colin says, your phone will ring or you will immediately remember everything that you've forgotten that you need to be doing. Or, and she said, so on, in your journal, just every time that happens, flip, flip it over, write that thing down and be like, I'm going to do that later. So you can put it out of your mind again. Um, so that you don't just get caught up trying to remember that thing or trying to the, the, write it down, put it aside and just say, no, the distraction is put aside now. Um, Uh, so put away your phone, your distraction, whatever you need to do that. Um, find a comfortable place. And then it says, for most people sitting with your back straight, shoulders relaxed, you know, just find a way to sit or lay or, you know, whatever you can do in order to be still. Uh, and it even says here, uh, there's like a get out of jail free card, uh, that if you can't cope with that, maybe do it while you're doing your laundry or washing up. Or if you need to be doing something, then that's fine. You don't. There's no. You haven't broken the rules and get. You know. You're out of the kingdom, kind of, because of this. Um, so if you need to do something with your hands, if you need to draw or something, by all means, it encourages you to do that in these notes. All right. So now, set number two. It just says begin with a breathing prayer. So I have. Um, I have like four weeks worth of these. This is just the first one, um, and as a part of all of the different steps towards seeking God and prayerfulness. It starts with setting aside your distractions and then a breathing prayer. And then um, what it says here is called abiding in the vine. So that's true in every week. Uh, and then we kind of add an extra element to it. But in this first week, we're just doing the, the first bit. So it says, begin with a breathing prayer, which is to say, close your eyes, take long, deep, slow breaths. If you want, count four seconds in, four seconds out. Just in, out, in, out. Uh, 
Inhale through your nose, exhale through your mouth. We're just trying to calm our bodies. Remember, we're trying to find quiet. Like even that in itself is a discipline and a practice that is a beautiful thing. Um, pay attention to your breathing. Watch your breath going in and out. Release the constant chatter in your mind. Let each thought go as quickly as it comes and just focus on your breathing. So that's why having the, the journal thing, you can flip over and write down. Like if you have a thought that won't go away, write it down. And then like it, the physical act of doing that helps you to put that thing aside. So it's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you've needed to get something, but as soon as you leave the room, you forget what it was. It's because you literally, they've done studies on this. Like there was something about going through a door frame that makes your brain put the idea aside. It's like you have a thought in a room and going through a doorway, you lose the thought. So we want to actively pursue how to do that. And, and that's why. So when we're breathing, we capture our thoughts and we put them aside and we put them aside and come back to our breathing. So we're just trying to get all of that constant chatter and noise and distraction out of our mind. Your mind will seize this opportunity to run wild with thoughts and feelings and memories and to do's and distractions. That's okay. That's to be expected. You don't judge yourself for that. You don't feel bad about that. You don't give up. You don't worry. You don't say, oh, I'm the worst at this. I'll never do this again. Um, when you notice your mind starting to wander, just recenter. Maybe say a quick prayer, you know, Jesus or Father or something that helps you to just recenter back um, to your breathing again. Uh, and this is where it says, in the beginning, if you can only do this for one or two minutes, then this is a good thing. Um, if you can do it for 10 minutes, that's a spectacular thing. So as we've been kind of pursuing more contemplative experiences, that's something that we've been doing together as a community. Um, you know, we light a candle or something. That can be a, a helpful way to try and focus. Okay, so that was our breathing prayer. Uh, and now uh, the next on our, um, on our guide here is abiding in the vine. So this is practicing the presence of God. So we go from our breathing prayer where we're just trying to refocus to practicing the presence of God. So what we want to do is we want to, in that place, just say, I know that God's presence is here and being aware of that, being aware of God's presence around you and in you. Um, maybe uh, if, if it helps for you to visualize that, you know, Jesus or, or God, the Father, um, if you've had some awful fatherhood experience, then picture God as a mother. You know, he, he's okay with that. Um, find a way to, to visualize, to, to, use, to activate your imagination, um, to bring God into your experience and be aware of his presence. Welcome his love and joy and peace um, from the Holy Spirit into your, into your space, into that Aramis, into that quiet place that you're in now. And uh, open your mind and your imagination to hear from God, um, to listen to his voice, and, um, or maybe to, to share something with him, to get something off your chest. Like so often we bring a guilt or a, a sense of shame or some kind of issue and, and just take that opportunity to hand that thing over to God. Um, and the whole point of this exercise is to be with Jesus. The point of this exercise is just to not feel like we have to be doing anything or there's no like criteria for success here. It's just about being in his presence. And then we just, um, to wrap that up, uh, it is to bring some gratitude, to be thankful. So you know, to bring a prayer of gratitude, of thanks, and to ask God to be with you in the rest of your day. Sorry to do this. You're right. White Astro has blocked off the driveway. And I'm used to 
<laughs> so that's all my notes on that page. Jess is giving me a look like we need to do that or she's not going to cope if we don't actually do that. She's worried and upset about many things. Uh, okay, so maybe grab one of these um, and I will talk you through that now. Fantastic. That's, that's the happy place. I'm good. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> While out. Yes. And prefacing my question slash comment with, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but you were like something happens between verse 14 and 15. Yes. Where God moves and transforms or kind of whatever. Uh, did you come to that conclusion just... Because, like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's probably what happened. But also, I can read this and be like Elijah being like, I've been very zealous and here are all my feelings. And I can also read it in a tone where God's like, go back where you came, go back, stop that. Like, where it was more, you know, bossy from God. Because he's sometimes like that. So, you know, I... I am inclined to think that if God was just cheesed off with Elijah... That he wouldn't have gone through the whole 40-day walk and the feeding him and letting him rest and being still and quiet. He was helping Elijah to get to the place that he needed to be so that something know, could happen. It still helps us even when we're being stupid. Yeah. Yeah. But I am I I am convinced that something happened in that moment where Elijah heard the whisper of God that met him where he was at and allowed him to then go back to the ministry that he had. He was a, a man of the same passions as us and he was afraid and, and anxious and wound up and God forced him to have a sabbatical so that he could get some rest and then did a work inside of him. So as we continue this, because I'm not finished with just one exercise, uh, we're only going to do one today, but there's some other exercises about like if you... Um, like I think we talked about this in the last uh, few times that I preached as well. Like if you come to that place and you try and find that quiet place, but all you end up with is guilt or shame or condemnation or like fear or anger or like you have mad issues, this breathing exercise, you know, you might find your center and then, but it's not going to work. So we're going to add to this as we, uh, over the coming weeks, ways to work through our grief or our fear or our anxiety or take the things that we're carrying around. How do we hand those things over to God? How do we, get healing how do we move to forgiveness how do we like there that's where we're headed in the next few weeks um so that's the plan cool yeah i think that's and that's that's what's super important here because elijah's perspective of his circumstance wasn't even true Um, and God didn't change his circumstance. He still had to go and deal with the whole Jezebel situation, um, but he did change something inside of Elijah's heart there. Um, so I agree with that completely. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to...